Hey everyone, welcome back to part two of this exciting discussion with immunologist, biologist, and epidemiologist, Dr. Beta Sadler of Switzerland. He wrote a really exciting article called Coronavirus, Why Everyone Was Wrong. I covered it last time on part one. If you haven't checked out that episode, make sure to do so. But this episode is going to concentrate on things like asymptomatic transmission, faulty PCR testing, and also how important it is to narrowly tailor our focus in handling pandemics like this in the future. Enjoy part two. Sadler goes on to talk about the models. Okay, like I mentioned earlier on, he said they did not want to believe that coronaviruses were seasonal viruses that would disappear in the summer. Otherwise, their entire curve models would have looked differently. And when the initial worst case scenarios didn't come true anywhere, some now still cling to those models predicting a second wave. So let's talk about this. Now, I want to do a separate um, episode about the two models because the two models are a completely different look at what this epidemic is. On one hand, it's this is brand new. Everybody's going to get it and we're all going to die. On the other hand, this is like an iceberg. At the tip of the iceberg are the cases we know about. And underneath that iceberg is a huge group of people who've already had this, already had exposure, already developed antibodies, and we're actually a lot better off than we thought. So this is the Imperial versus the Oxford models. Depending on which model you're looking at, the predictions of death vary greatly. So what he's saying is the initial models basically predicted this total devastation. But they never, these were the worst case scenarios, they never came true. But yet people are still clinging to these models predicting a second wave as if, well, I know it's just going to be so much worse. This is going to be coming too. And, and there is something in there like they want that to be the case. They want this seriousness to be there. It's, it's very odd. But he said, let's let them have their hopes, which is kind of funny. He's being sarcastic. But these people are almost hoping for devastation. He said, and this is, I think is a great quote. He says, I have also not yet understood why epidemiologists were so much more interested in the number of deaths rather than in the numbers that could be saved. And if you followed me, you know, I, I'm, I talk about this often. I mean, there, and many people have coined this term fear porn. What you're seeing on the media, what you're seeing on the news, it is just like, really, really trying to cater to fear, the emotion of fear, even if it's not substantiated by data. I mean, if there's something to really be afraid about, you know, I get it. Let's, let's be honest about that and let's be afraid of it. But when you're, when you're trying to extract and create fear when, when there really is no need for it, then you're basically manipulating people to feel a certain way about something. And I find that to be extremely problematic you know, we count on our media and our news organizations to tell us the truth. And the reality is we're not getting the truth. And, um, you know, what do they say? Um, if it bleeds, it leads. So they're looking for ratings. They're looking for ratings. And ratings don't come from, turns out, COVID-19 illness is mostly mild and you're going to be fine. That doesn't get the ratings that they want. That's not the clickbait that they want. So instead, they've gone to the other extreme 
And it's funny that here he is, an epidemiologist in Switzerland, acknowledging that they wanted these worst case scenarios and they didn't happen. So now that they're mad that didn't happen, they're going to predict this really gruesome, awful second wave. And he realizes that's what their hope is. Their hope is that this is going to come true, which sounds completely crazy, but that's what's happening. So the next point he says is he says, as an immunologist, I trust a biological model, namely that of the human organism, which has built a tried and tested adaptive immune system. Okay, remember just recently an article came out saying, turns out it looks like boosting the immune system might be an actual way to treat COVID. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, no, duh. This is something we've been saying from the very beginning, obviously, obviously. And as an epidemiologist, he would understand this and an immunologist. So um, he says, as a biological model, he likes to look at the immune system. He said, back when they were basically saying that there were these certain at-risk groups and the at-risk groups were dying, nobody asked for studies to prove that. But then when people said children aren't at risk, everybody said, where are the studies to prove that? So he said, when the first statistics came from China and later worldwide data that showed the same trend, which the trend was that almost no children under 10 got sick, everybody should have made the argument at that time that children clearly have to be immune because why aren't children getting affected? Not only are they not dying, they're not really getting infected. Now, we're still seeing positive test results, but I have my own theories that the tests are faulty. I think we have a lot of false positives happening because these people are symptom-free, completely symptom-free. But there's a reason for that, which he goes into in a second that I'll explain. But what he's saying is if children were not getting infected, then we should be saying they're immune. And if they're immune, why are they immune? We know the world's children have not all experienced SARS-CoV-1. So what could be another reason? Well, who is the primary spreader of basic common colds? Children. So is there a chance that because they've exposed, been exposed to the common cold so often, so frequently, that their body recognizes it, mounted a response, and they never got sick? Why is nobody talking about that possibility? He says, this common sense seems to have eluded many people. And he said, let's call them the immunity deniers. And I like that. I think I'm going to use that. He said, this new breed of immunity deniers had to observe that the majority of people who tested positive for the virus, i.e. the virus was present in the throat, did not get sick. So the term silent carriers was conjured out of a hat, basically out of thin air. And it was claimed that one could be sick without having symptoms. And he says, wouldn't that be something? Now, this is, again, going back to the asymptomatic transmission. Now, this guy is an immunologist, okay? He's saying this idea of silent carriers, that you could be sick without having symptoms, is ridiculous. And not only could you be sick without having symptoms, people are saying you could be sick without symptoms and able to transmit to somebody else and create another infection in somebody else. He says, that, which he says right here, the next joke that some virologists shared was that the claim was that those were sick without symptoms could spread the virus to other people. The healthy sick, I love that, would have so much of the virus in their throats that a normal conversation between two people would be enough for the healthy one to infect the other healthy one. I mean, doesn't this sound laughable at this point? He said, if a virus is growing anywhere in the body, 
also in the throat, it means that human cells decease. When human cells decease, the immune system is alerted immediately and an infection is caused. It's understandable that those afflicted by COVID-19 might not remember the initial scratchy throat and then go on to claim they didn't have any symptoms just a few days ago. But for doctors and virologists to twist this into a story of healthy sick people, which stokes the panic and was given as a reason for stricter lockdown measures, it just shows how bad the joke really is. And then he says, at least the World Health Organization didn't accept the claim of asymptomatic infections and challenged this on its website, which it did. But then, of course, all the news about that shut down really quickly because, like I said, it generated quite a bit of anger. So listen to what he's saying. The people that had that mild, scratchy throat and they just kind of assumed they didn't have any symptoms because they weren't, you know, down and out the way that they think they're supposed to be with this particular illness... That is not the same thing as being asymptomatic. That is mildly symptomatic. Okay, we've got asymptomatic, which means no symptoms. You never had them. You never go on to have them. We have pre-symptomatic, which is no symptoms until you later get sick, which is the part of contagion would be that point before you're symptomatic. And then we have mildly symptomatic, which means you did have symptoms. You just didn't really recognize them because it was a lot more mild than you anticipated this to be. The idea of asymptomatic transmission is flawed. The theory they are using to spread around this country and the world, creating lockdown policies and mask mandates, is absolutely flawed. There is no data that shows asymptomatic transmission is happening from symptom-free people with positive test results to another person creating an infection. There is no data to prove this, no data to substantiate this. I don't care how many doctors say they think it could happen or, well, this is what the CDC said or what Fauci said. There's no data to back this up. We know it's not happening because we would see it happen a lot more. The virus is spreading like viruses do. And the testing with all these positive tests that I think are faulty We're getting case numbers being reported to the state that are inflated. And so it makes it look like this thing's out of control. I don't know a single person that's sick with this. In the last six months, nobody in my circle has been sick with this. So, I mean, it just, I don't know if the reality is actually backing up what all these theories are, just like all their models that they have. And this is the big difference between medicine in practice and medicine in theory. And you've got somebody like Fauci who has not had a patient in like 40 years because he's an academic. That's very different than somebody who's a practicing physician who is seeing, you know, what Dr. Scott Jensen calls in the trenches. And and we need to know what's happening on the ground because that's what's really happening versus what we think is going to happen or could be happening or whatever. We could We could do these hypotheses all day long and it's just going to be wasting everybody's time and destroying all these lives. So he says, here's a little information on basically how immunity works. Again, this is a celebrated immunologist, okay? He says, here is a succinct and brief summary, especially for the immunity deniers, of how humans are attacked by germs and how we react to them. Okay, here it goes. If there are pathogenic viruses in our environment, then all humans, whether immune or not, are attacked by the virus. 
If someone is immune, the battle with the virus begins. First, we try to prevent the virus from binding to our own cells with the help of antibodies. This normally works only partially. Not all are blocked, and some viruses will attach to the appropriate cells anyway. That doesn't need to lead to symptoms, but it's also not a disease because the second guard of the immune system is now called into action. That's the T cells, which we mentioned briefly. White blood cells, which can determine from the outside in which other cells the virus is now hiding to multiply. So these cells, which are now incubating the virus, are searched throughout the entire body and killed by the T cells until the last virus is dead. Okay, that's a basic summary of how the immune system works as it relates to viruses entering the body, whether you're immune or not, because everybody's going through a response. The difference would be how quickly your body shuts it down before the virus takes over and actually causes you to be symptomatic. So he says, if we do a PCR corona test on an immune person, somebody who's already had it, it is not a virus that is detected on that PCR test, but a small shattered part of the viral genome. Okay, this is important. The test comes back positive for as long as there are these tiny shattered parts of the virus left. So even if the infectious viruses are long dead, a corona test can come back positive because the PCR method, the method of that test, multiplies even a tiny fraction of the viral genetic material enough to be detected. Think about this. This is such an important concept to understand as it relates to testing. If you already had the virus months ago, you can have teeny tiny viral genetic material in your body, okay? Shattered parts of the virus that are still in your body. And the PCR test will pick it up as if you are currently infected. It is not separating people into two groups, those who were previously infected and those who are currently infected. Instead, it detects the presence of the viral particles, which people assume is the virus. But in reality, it's the viral particles, the, 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 uh, the shattered part of the viral genome, he says. And then what they do when they see that positive, they say, you are positive, you're infectious, you need to quarantine. That means you're not allowed at work, you're not allowed out of your house in some cases, and it's completely unnecessary. So he's saying, this is exactly what happened when there was global news shared by the World Health Organization that 200 Koreans who already went through COVID-19 were infected a second time and that there was therefore probably no immunity against this virus. So how many of you have heard this? Oh, turns out if you get this virus, you're probably not going to be protected anyway. We've had that theory going around several times. The reason that theory exists is because of this exact circumstance where people got it a, quote, second time. But in reality, they never got something a second time. In reality, the second positive test was just picking up the dead, inactivated, shattered parts of the virus in the body. Okay, a positive 
test does not necessarily mean you're infectious. And this is such a big deal because a positive test that shows these shattered parts of the virus when I already had this several months ago, I am at no risk to the population. I don't need to wear a mask and I also don't need to be quarantined. But if there's no distinction between a positive test, which is currently infectious, and a positive test, which means you were prior, had a prior infection, then we're in a, in a, a terrible place right now because these tests mean nothing and they really tell us nothing about what's going on. And we're going to get a lot of people unjustly and unnecessarily quarantined and removed from their work activities um, and social environments when there's nothing, no risk that they pose to the public. This is so important to understand. So he said after the Koreans that um, came up a second time positive, the explanation of what really happened and an apology came later when it was clear that the immune Koreans were perfectly healthy and just had a short battle with the virus, and the viral debris registered with the overly sensitive test and came back as positive. And what he says, listen to this right now. It is likely that a large number of the daily reported infection numbers are purely due to viral debris. I'm going to repeat that. It is likely that a large number of the daily reported infection numbers are purely due to viral debris. Remember, viral debris is not infectious. It is no longer alive. It does not have the capability of causing or spreading an infection to another person. It is not a risk. It is safe. In other words, it is safe. So he says the PCR test cannot identify whether the virus is still alive and it needs to be alive to be infectious. He said, unfortunately, this led some virologists to equate the strength of a test with the viral load. Now, we talked about viral load uh, a little bit with Dr. Scott Jensen because those who are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic tend to have a much lower viral load than others. And the, the amount of viral load absolutely does infect your ability to be able to create an infection in another person. So the tests are not able to identify these type of things. Um, and that is obviously an issue. Okay, the next point he makes, which I hope you're enjoying this article, because honestly, there's so much good information in here that really counters every argument that's being made right now, and it's countering it with data. Okay, so here's something that I, I find um, interesting. He said, the extremely long incubation time of 2 to 14 days, what we know the average is about 6 days. And some even report 22 to 27 days, right? This is part of the reason why they say, oh, it turns out this can be you can be infectious for so long. The incubation period can be so long that people are silently spreading this all over the place and we don't know who they are. Therefore, we all need to lock down and shelter in place. But he said this, the long incubation time should wake up any immunologist. He said, as well as the claim that most patients would no longer secrete the virus after five days. He said there is... A certain cycle of viral infection, which leads to a long incubation period and quick immunity. He said this immunity also seems to be the problem for patients with a severe course of the disease. Our antibody amount and our ability to mount these antibodies is reduced the older we get. 
but also people with bad diet or malnourished or have a weakened immune system also have a hard time with this, which is why the virus does not only reveal the medical problems of the country, but the social issues. So we've talked a lot about, or I've talked a lot about risk factors. Our leaders are not talking a lot about that because they should be trying to improve the risk factors to reduce the number of cases and reduce the complications that come from cases. But no, instead, just stay home, wear a mask, get the vaccine. That's the only advice they're giving. He says, if an infected person does not have enough antibodies, like a weak immune response, the virus slowly spreads through the whole body. Now that there are not enough antibodies, there's only the one other way that your immune system kicks in, which is the T cells, which we talked about. And the T cells begin to attack the virus-infested cells all over the body. This can lead to an exaggerated immune response, otherwise known as a cytokine storm. Very rarely, this can happen in small children. And you know what that's called, everybody? Kawasaki disease. Remember how we talked about this before? The Kawasaki disease, which we've got 5,500 to 6,000 kids in the United States every single year diagnosed with this. It can be triggered by multiple viral infections, multiple viral infections. And it's highly treatable, extremely treatable. Over 95% of cases are treated with no long-term effects. It says this very rare occurrence in children was also used in the country to stoke panic. Remember when they started saying this was a COVID, a COVID side effect now? We've got this terrible, this terrible condition called multiple organ inflammatory syndrome, MIS-C for children. And I remember Cuomo coming out from New York saying, oh, my gosh, we've got over 100 kids like this. And everybody said, oh, my gosh, this is, we're going to start seeing this explode all over the country. And what happened? Absolutely nothing Again, they were really trying to paint the picture that this is still dangerous to children, and it's not. It has not been dangerous to them from the very beginning. SARS-CoV-1 was not dangerous to them, and here they are continuing to talk about it and really trying to push the fear. So he said, uh, it's interesting because that syndrome is very easily cured. The affected children, they get antibodies from healthy blood donors, people who went through coronavirus colds. He said this means... That the non-existent immunity, this hush-hush non-existent immunity in the population is in fact used therapeutically for children in this situation. So therefore, we have a cure for these complications and it's our own antibodies from prior coronavirus infections or prior exposure that's able to help the body. So he says, what now? The virus is gone for now. It'll probably come back in the winter, but it won't be a second wave. It'll be just a cold. Those young and healthy people who currently walk around with a mask on their faces, I love this so much. Listen to this quote. The young people who walk around with a mask on their faces would be better off wearing a helmet instead because the risk of something falling on their head is greater than that of getting a serious case of COVID. And oh my God, I cannot wait to to post that quote. The young and healthy people that are currently walking around with a mask would be better off wearing a helmet instead because the risk of something falling on their head is greater than the risk of a serious case of COVID-19. So he says, um, he recommends Reading John Ioannidis' latest work, where he describes the global situation, he said, 
that people below 65 years old make up only 0.6 to 2.6 of all fatal COVID cases. So around 1% to 2% of the fatal COVID cases are people under 65. Now remember, the majority of our population is under 65. So that means the majority of our population is not at any significant risk, despite what the media wants you to think, that young and healthy people are getting taken down left and right because coronavirus doesn't care if you're young. It doesn't care if you're healthy. It's like if you actually do research into these cases, you realize it was the treatment or there was an underlying condition or something else happened because this virus is not randomly attacking people. Uh, he says... The, re the way that we combat this is to get on top of this pandemic. We need a strategy merely concentrating on the protection of at-risk people over 65. He said, let's fine-tune our strategy. Let's narrowly focus it to the risk groups. The risk groups, 97 and 98% of deaths are over 65 years old. 98%. That's crazy. That's a crazy high number. So he said, because that's the case, we need to narrowly tailor our strategy to protect at-risk people over 65. He said, if that's the opinion of a top expert, which is, he's talking about John Ioannidis, he said, a second lockdown is simply a no-go. We shouldn't do it. Makes no sense. He said, on our way back to normal, it would be good for us citizens if a few scaremongers apologized. The media that keeps showing alarmist videos of hospitals to illustrate a situation that didn't really exist. The politicians calling for testing, testing, testing without even knowing what the test actually measures. And all the federal governments that created apps that they'll never get to work that will warn you if someone near you is positive, even if they're not infectious. And um, I kind of like this guy. He has kind of a cool sense of humor. But um, anyway, basically... He's saying at the end here, um, you know, when flu season comes around, we'll have to be a little bit more careful for all the respiratory viruses that go around at that time. And people that are sick, that actually are sick, can wear the masks, which can let everybody know I'm, I'm sick, kind of stay away from me. But it doesn't make sense to be masking all of the healthy people that are not at risk. So anyway... So that's the end of that article. Again, coronavirus, why everyone was wrong. Betta Stadler, Beta Stadler, the former director of the Institute for Immunology at the University of Bern, a biologist and professor, an important medical professional in Switzerland. And I think he really just targets some really interesting stuff that um, many of it I've already talked about, but it's nice to see it kind of all in one place and just, you know, a couple weeks old. I love um, getting that continued validation that the stuff that we've seen, even though we've seen it like 50 times by now, but considering the fact that so much of the public is on a different side of this argument, you do start questioning yourself and you start wondering like, am I off on this one? But, you know, time and time and time again, you get revalidated by things like this that tell you and tell your rational brain, the one that's been speaking to you this whole time that, yeah, this actually makes no sense because of X, Y, and Z. And you're going, yeah, that's what I thought. So I love reading this kind of stuff because um, it just reinforces things we've talked about, things that many of you believe and have heard and whatever. But also he goes into some details about the immune system, how it works, the specifics. And I like that as well. So make sure to check out this article and read it for yourself. Share it on your social media page or with uh, loved ones who maybe are still fearful or still confused about all of this. And share this episode with them 
if they're open to it because this is just a discussion on experts and their opinions and what they've come to and what other experts have come to and the findings and how it's different than what we're being told. And it's so important that we continue to talk about this stuff and weigh both sides and really, really challenge the belief systems here and make sure we're right because this is a big freaking deal where we are in society right now. This is like, we're, this is no joke. Some people are barely hanging on by a thread. We better be damn sure that everything we do is based on some solid, solid evidence. And that just hasn't happened even once. Okay, like eight months in, seven, eight months in has not happened once. And I really hope people can see that. Because I'm all for following policies when they're evidence-based. And I'm all for following things when it shows and proves that they work. But when that's not the case, I have a hard time just going along with stuff because we're just supposed to. Or going along with stuff because everybody else does. You should constantly be questioning your own belief system and others so that you can really find where you land on something as important as what we're dealing with right now. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode of What They Aren't Telling You. Lots more to come. And if there's something you come across that you think would be great to cover, send me a message on Facebook and uh, I'll check it out and do my best to incorporate it. So thank you guys for listening and I will catch you next time on What They Aren't Telling You.